months now, as we have, have worked our way through the Apostles' Creed together, um, you know, you, you've heard a little bit from me, you've heard from, from Josh, you've heard from Dustin Saunders, but I think what you've probably picked up on is the fact that these I believe statements that we confess together and that the church for years has confessed together, they're not just randomly assorted truths about Christianity. But really what they do is they lay out the story of redemption in Scripture. Have you seen that? It begins, as we saw, the very first line of the Apostles' Creed, it begins with the first person of the Trinity introduced to us, God the Father Almighty. That the Genesis 1, maker of heaven and earth. And then the creed moves to the eternal son who has always been with the father. He was with him when he created, but in God's eternal plan, the son would become man. And he did, and he lived among God's people, and he suffered, and he died, and he defeated death, and he was resurrected. Then he ascended into heaven and sits at the father's right hand, and as Josh taught us, he will return as judge. And each of those events, everything, all of this down to the very smallest details, all of those things were prophesied in the Old Testament. Each of these truths were promises of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. And we've seen that. We've seen that those promises being fulfilled as we've looked through the creed, as we've studied it and looked to God's word. We have that first line, God is when the heavens... And then we have that second paragraph, God comes down from the heavens to the earth, and even as we saw, it goes down below the earth, he's raised up, he ascends back into heaven. So those are our first two paragraphs of the creed, and now we're entering into the last paragraph. And the last paragraph is our meanwhile on earth paragraph. Meanwhile, while Messiah King Jesus reigns from the right hand of the Father in heaven, he has poured out his spirit on his people on earth, and the spirit created the church, who is the body of the risen and ascended Christ. And through the spirit's work, the church continues to proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the resurrection and eternal life in Christ. Do you see how it works? Jesus gives us these things, second paragraph, he sends the Spirit, third paragraph, who creates the church, who continues the proclamation of these things. That's the creed. And, and those, our last four sermons of this series, we're going into that last paragraph, the meanwhile side of the redemption, the part of God's story that you and I are living in right now. And I, and I say that, I introduce the Holy Spirit that way, because that Reading the creed that way defines how we are to understand the Holy Spirit and why he is here at this point in the creed. So why here? Have you thought about that? Why did you, apostles and early church, why, why didn't you put him at the beginning? If the Spirit is one of the three persons of our triune God, and he is, then why not say at the very beginning, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, and then get into the rest of it? Well, because the point of the creed is not to say every true thing that there is to say about God. The point of the creed is to show what we as Christians believe 
or, or more accurately, what the Bible says about the story of God redeeming his people. So, that, that, that changes how we approach this this morning, because our, our topic this morning is the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so, we would understand now that this sermon is not going to be a survey of everything that the Bible says about who the Holy Spirit is, but rather, what is the Holy Spirit's role in redemption? So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Probably knew we were going there, didn't you? There's only a couple places we can go. At the end of John, and, uh, and you have Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to go. We'll get to John in a couple weeks. Acts chapter 2. And, and as you're turning there, I want to give you a little context for, for what we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, what we're going to be reading. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 happens after Jesus died and was resurrected and spent those 40 days with his disciples. This is shortly before his ascension into heaven. And what he told them during that time was to wait, wait for the sending of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, 4, he says it this way, or Acts puts it this way, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And Jesus called the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father because the Spirit's coming is not a new idea. This is not something that just that Jesus came up with while he walked the earth. The Spirit's coming was an old, old promise that God had spoke through the prophets. Let me just give you a couple of those promises that we see from the Father. One of them is in Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1, prophesies of a time to come when God will raise up a king who will reign in righteousness. Who's that? That's Messiah King Jesus, isn't it? This is a Messiah prophecy. And, and when this king arrives, Isaiah tells us, God's people will know that the time of the restoration is coming with him. And the time of that king's coming, Isaiah tells us, also happens alongside the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Look what Isaiah says in that same chapter, Isaiah 32, verse 14. He says, For the palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower will be dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until. What does that word until mean? He's saying there's no king in the palace. The king of righteousness is not in the palace. Israel is a desolate place until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And when the Spirit is poured out, and if you keep reading in Isaiah 32, you see that the age of God reconciling all things to himself begins. It's the age of justice. It's the age of peace. The age of the king of righteousness begins when the Spirit is poured out. Ezekiel also prophesied of this coming day. Only for Ezekiel, it was described as a day of God returning his people from exile. It was a day when God's people would no longer be cast away from him, away from his presence, but they would be restored to his presence. This is how, how Ezekiel talks about this coming day. Ezekiel 39, 29, 
The Lord says, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I, look at it, pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. One more, Joel. This one's really important. Joel prophesied about this day too. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. The Lord speaking through Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward. That word afterward is a key word. It's talking about later times. It will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Same language. Do you see it? And we're going to talk more about Joel's prophecy in a little bit, but the point is this. Jesus told his disciples that the Father had promised the sending of the Spirit, and the disciples knew their Bibles, and they understood that the age of the Messiah's rule would also be the time when the Spirit was given. That's why one of the questions they ask at the beginning of Acts is, is now the time? He says, no, you've got to wait. Well, since the disciples believed Jesus is Messiah, they knew that that, that age... The time of restoration had, had arrived. They, they knew it's there. And so in obedience to their Messiah, King Jesus, they wait for the Father's promise of the Spirit who accompanies that age. All right? That gives you some context, some whole Bible context to what we're about to see in Acts chapter 2. That gets us to Acts 2. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We'll just do 1 through 4 here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, and the they here, you read earlier in Acts chapter 1 that that's about 120 people. All of them are Jesus' followers. Twelve of those 120 are the disciples, but there are men and women there, 120 people. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is it. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises from the Father. But the way that Luke records this for us is extremely important for how we understand what's happening here. If you've been with us for a while here at Del Cerro, you know that we read every word of the Bible as very important. These, these words are, this is, whole book is written by one author, and so when this one author uses repeated words, we cue into those things. So let's zoom in here on verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. This rushing wind, this is a curious thing, isn't it? Now, now, where does he say that the sound of the mighty rushing wind originates? Luke says it comes from heaven. And whenever you see that in the Bible, remember, heaven is the place where God dwells. God is everywhere. We know that. He's not bound by any one place, but heaven is his throne. You see that in the Psalms. It's where he rules from. Psalm 11:4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That's where the Lord rules from. So heaven is the place of his presence. So there is this, this sound of a rushing wind coming from the place of God's presence. Now, there are only a handful of places that we see this type of event happening in Scripture, in, this, in God's big story of redemption. The first place that we see a wind coming from God in heaven 
is in Genesis chapter 8, right after the flood. So, so if, you, if you don't know the story of the flood, in the flood, God had judged the entire earth because of the wickedness of mankind. But he had preserved for himself righteous and blameless Noah, as Genesis says. And it is from Noah's family that God will begin things anew. He will start a, a new creation through Noah. The old creation was destroyed with water. Noah and his family are preserved in the ark. And right at the beginning of that renewal of the earth, in order to make all things new, God sends a mighty rushing wind. Look at Genesis 8.1. Do you see it? God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. And what happens when the waters subside? Well, there's dry land now. And it is that wind from heaven that separates the seas from the dry land. So, so that righteous and blameless Noah can be the new Adam, the new creation, Adam, and humanity can begin again to be fruitful and multiply and spread God's glory over the face of the earth. Okay, so that's the Bible story. And it begins with God sending from heaven this wind. In the Exodus, we see something like this happen again. God has preserved the family of Jacob. And as an aside, just if you follow the Bible story, Jacob came from Isaac, who came from Abraham, who came from Terah, whose family line traces back to Shem, who came from Noah. Right? So that's the Genesis story. You're seeing these, these lines, these family lines preserved. Well, God took that special family of promise called Jacob, or what we call Israel, and he protected them, and he multiplied them, and then he was going to redeem them from slavery in Egypt. He was going to bring them in to his covenant. And recognize what's happening there. God has set apart a holy people to be his representatives on earth. He's going to bring them into the land. And what happens? He sends a wind, doesn't he? He sends a mighty rushing wind to separate the waters from the dry land and save his people. Now, here in Acts, we have a new era beginning. The righteous one of God, righteous and blameless one of God, is the beginning of the new creation. And we have a chosen people who have been set apart to make his glory known, God is bringing them into his promise, and what happens? Well, we should know by now, he's going to send some wind, isn't he? God sends a mighty rushing wind from heaven. This is a signal for us as we read the Bible. This is a signal that God is doing something new. His plan of redemption is coming into fruition. Do you see that? So one more thing about this wind before we move on, and this one is probably even more specific than the first. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 1, when the glory of God comes to Ezekiel, you know how it is described? Look at Ezekiel 1.4. I'll put it on the screen for you. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And that's interesting. Uh, and the wind is interesting, and then you get 20 verses of really interesting descriptions of these four creatures that, that move around at the behest of the Holy Spirit. And we were joking this week about, if you read that this week, think about how fun it would be to have a coloring page for the kids with uh, 
with the description of that creature. Um, nursery, Josh? Okay, N- next week. So, so verse 24, though, because what's happening here is Ezekiel's describing these creatures, and they're moving around at the behest of the Holy Spirit. And then look what Ezekiel says. Verse 24, and when they went, I heard the sound of their wings. Now pause for a moment. What do wings flapping sound like? Makes a whooshing sound, right? Especially if it's really big. Ezekiel says it's like the sound of wind. Only says it's loud, so loud that it's like the sound of many waters. Only it's louder than that. It's like the sound of the Almighty. And he he can't quite grasp what this sounds like. He even has to say the sound of a tumult like the sound of an army. Like thousands and thousands of men marching. It's really loud. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. So again, we have another word picture here of our mighty rushing wind. And if you continue in Ezekiel 1, what you're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 1 is that present with the Spirit and these creatures who are making all this wind sound comes the glory of God. Ezekiel sees, describes it as the glory of God on his throne. So, wherever the sound of this wind from heaven goes, the glory of God is there as well. That's Ezekiel's point, Ezekiel chapter 1. All right, so now you have a little bit of Bible knowledge. Let's go back to what Luke says in Acts chapter 2. We're continuing in verse 2. The wind filled, new word, filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, we already know this wind is from God because Luke said it's from from heaven. It's the start of something new that God is doing. We know from Ezekiel that the sound of the wind from God signals the presence of the glory of God coming in. And this wind is different than what we saw in Genesis and Exodus because it didn't blow water away. This wind of God's presence fills the entire house. So we have a filling happening. Where does that happen in the Bible? There are only a couple places where we see that the presence of God, the glory of God, fills something in Scripture. The first is the tabernacle that Israel carried with them wherever they went. So in in Exodus 40, they have this tabernacle that they're commissioning, and this is how Moses describes that event. Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and we know from the rest of Exodus that this cloud is the presence of God, and the day presence of God is the cloud, at night it's a pillar of fire. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what's happening here? is God's presence was being made manifest in this tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled that place. And it happens again. When Israel does away with the tent and they make a permanent dwelling place for God, a permanent temple, look what happens. Second Chronicles chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And here it is again. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That sounds just like what we saw, doesn't it? 
Moses could not enter because the glory of the Lord filled the, filled the tabernacle. The priest could not enter because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, the old tent and the old temple were places where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. This is the, the covenant of God with his people. And that was on stone, and it was there, and God made his, his dwelling there among his people. But this place is different, isn't it? What we're seeing in Acts. This room is different. In Acts chapter 2, was there an Ark of the Covenant there? No, there's not. What's in this room? Look back at Acts chapter 2 to, to see what Luke says is in this room. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. There's no statues of cherubim and seraphim, no ark, no lampstands, no bread of the presence in this room. Only the followers of Jesus are in this room. And you need to see this. This is really important. When it comes to understanding what the Holy Spirit is doing, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the ministry of the Spirit coming from Christ is unique. Unlike the tabernacle where Moses could not be because of God's presence. And unlike the temple where the priests could not be because of the presence of the glory of the Lord, these 120 disciples are right here surrounded by the presence of the glory of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, who has filled the room. This alone should be astonishing when it comes to the big story of the Bible. Men and women experiencing the presence of God like this. What has changed? What has changed from the tabernacle and the temple to here? Well, we know what's happened. Jesus happened. When Jesus died and defeated death and ascended into heaven, where did he go? He went into to the true Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. And since the sins of these people who are in this room have been atoned for by Jesus, when he went into that holy place, well, they've been made holy. What that means, because of Christ's work for them, purifying them, washing them, sanctifying them, atoning for them, that means that the presence of God and the Spirit can descend on them and they can be in the presence of the glory of God. Not like Moses, who couldn't. Not like the priests, who could not. But like people who have been brought before God by Messiah himself. What we see happening here is, is a real-life picture of the dramatic contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We're seeing very, very, very clearly the significance of the work of Christ. Something completely new is happening now that Christ has come. Understand this. What is happening here in Acts 2, the heavenly dwelling place of God has come down and filled the place where the 120 disciples are. They are in the presence of the glory of God. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. See what happens next. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if we didn't have this verse, we would have a problem. Because we would read verse 2 and think that perhaps this special place, this, this upper room, was going to be the new temple. The new place on earth where heaven and earth meet and God makes his presence known. But we know for a fact that this room is not what is in view, but it is the people who are in this room that are in view here. Never again will this room be mentioned for the rest of the Bible. It's just a place. And Luke even makes a point of not telling us where this room is exactly, except for that it's somewhere in Jerusalem. The room is totally insignificant. But the men and women in this room are very significant. Because these people, these Christ followers, are now, what does verse 4 say? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and they are now the place, the people of the presence of God. And this room will disappear into the unknown. There is no shrine to this room in Jerusalem. Amidst all the garbage shrines that are in Jerusalem now, they didn't do this one. They don't know where this is. These people, wherever they go, though, these people are the people through whom the Spirit travels because these people carry in them the gospel. And we're going to talk about that next week, all right? So just hold that thought when we get to the church. But let's keep going in, in the verse. We've looked at the wind. We've looked at the filling. Now we have another Old Testament echo that we need to study, these tongues of fire. What incarnation is this? Tongues of fire. This is unusual in the Bible. You see something weird like this, and you would think, I've got to find this. has got to be somewhere in Ezekiel, right? This, is, this has got to be in one of those obscure prophecies somewhere searching the Bible. This is really unusual in the Bible. In fact, we do see it, but we only see it in one place. These heavenly tongues of fire are in Isaiah 30. So take a moment and turn back to Isaiah 30 with me. We're going to be there for a moment. So if you turn to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably be somewhere in the Psalms. Go to the right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah. In Isaiah 30, here's what's happening in this, this chapter of the Bible. God, through Isaiah, is pronouncing woes on Israel. Because they aren't trusting in him, they're trusting in, in Egypt. And they're trusting in worldly strength and worldly power, rather than trusting in God himself. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 19, Isaiah says, A day is coming... When, when the grace of God will be manifest, when someone called the teacher comes, capital T, teacher, and he will, he will teach them, God's people, the way of the Lord, and they will have ears to hear and eyes to see, and they will know the Lord, and they will turn from idolatry, and they will learn to walk in obedience to the Lord. Again, a Messiah prophecy, isn't it? The teacher who comes to teach the way, that's, that's Jesus, that's Messiah, Clearly, this is the age of Messiah coming. But following that passage, before that time, God has to deal with Israel's enemies. And here in chapter 30, 
God promises that he's going to have vengeance on these nations that are, are leading his people astray. This is where we see the fiery tongue. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury. His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations in the sieve, with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. And what you find when you keep reading in Isaiah 30 is that this tongue of fire is essentially God's judgment on Assyria, Israel's enemy. And in that judgment, the reason why it's spoken of as a tongue is because the judgment comes through God's word, speech. It's from his mouth. His tongue, his breath emanating from that faraway place where he dwells. All right, so faraway place where God dwells, fiery tongue, the word of judgment coming to Assyria. You with me? All right, it's kind of complicated. Now let's take that imagery and take it back to Acts chapter 2. The Spirit has come from afar. We know it's come from the heavenly place. Descended. Filled the room with the glory of God, as we've seen. And these tongues of fire, what are they? It's the word of the Lord. Particularly identified with the judgment of God. These fiery tongues with which God will pronounce judgment are resting on the disciples. And what we need to see here is that God is entrusting his disciples with his message. That's the symbolism here. God is entrusting his disciples with his message. They have his spirit. They have his gospel. And what would you expect to happen next? Well, they would speak, wouldn't they? They have God's tongues on them. And what are they going to say? They're going to speak God's words. They speak for the Lord. And that's exactly what we see happen. Acts 2, verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what are they uttering? Acts 2, verse 11 says they are telling the mighty works of God. And we have something here going on that we don't have time to talk about today. But if you were in our Acts class, in Sunday school, you saw this as a reversal of Babel, of the reversal of the Tower of Babel. So you have the nations on ba in Babel who are scattered because they tried to make a temple to God. Here you have God creating a temple amongst his people, drawing the nations in, and they can understand once, uh, each other once again. A different sermon for another time. But, but, but the people are bewildered of what's happening, and then Peter gets up to preach, and here comes the fire. All right. As he does, the Spirit through Peter affirms that those promises from the Father have been fulfilled. This is the first thing that Peter says. Joel 2 was just fulfilled for you. That's what he says. This is fulfilling Joel chapter 2. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now look what he says next. The last days have arrived, he's saying. The Spirit has been poured out. 
There are men prophesying. There are women prophesying. They've received the Spirit. They're speaking the mighty works of God, led along by the Spirit. And look what he says after that. This is where it gets weird. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. He's just quoting Joel 2 here. And he keeps going, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we like that last part, don't we? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that is our message. Salvation is in Christ alone, and we preach that week in and week out. And we all agree with the first part. Clearly, the Spirit has been poured out, and there are people prophesying. Undeniable. But we get tripped up by that dark sun and the blood moon part. What's going on there? Well, if you were with us when we were studying Matthew, which we still are, and we'll get back to next month, we were in Matthew chapter 24. And do you remember Jesus using very, very similar language in Matthew chapter 24? Matthew 24, verse 29, he said, The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. Very similar. And you remember what we concluded that language was referring to? It was what we call apocalyptic language, very vivid, prophetic language. And it was echoing the Old Testament prophecies of the destruction of Babylon and Egypt. And Jesus uses that same language, this cosmic language to describe just how significant the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple were going to be. Do you remember that? Well, you see this language because when God judges a city, when he pours out his wrath on people, even the heavenly bodies turn their shining faces away from the sight of the destruction. God's wrath towards sin is so horrific that all of creation groans under the strain. That's why this type of language is necessary. So let's just back up a second. When Peter says Joel 2 is being fulfilled, he's saying the age of the righteous king has arrived. He, he's he's a, a, entered into his heavenly temple and he's poured out the spirit. That's what Peter's saying is happening. That's what Joel 2 says would happen. That means the last days have begun. And Joel teaches that when that happens, the age of the presence of God in the old temple would be over. And that's what Peter said. That old stone building in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. That's what Peter is saying here. The people have cherished the temple, that physical structure, more than they cherish the Lord himself. So much so that they crucified the Son of God. They killed the righteous king. But Peter goes on in his message. You're still in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 24. Peter says, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, God raised that king up and he seated him at his right hand and then he sent the Spirit to prove that this age has arrived. And then he keeps going in verse 33. Now, as the exalted Messiah, the Lord is making Christ's enemies into his footstool. Uh, we're going really fast here, I understand that. But we need to realize that what Peter's just saying right there, 
is not a word, not just a word about the exaltation of Jesus. Peter is using these verses as a threat. The Lord is making Christ's enemies a footstool. And he's saying, because you killed Jesus, you're his enemies. Do you see the threat? He's talking about them. He goes on. It's very clear in verse 36. God has made Jesus, whom you killed, Lord in Christ. And what do you think happens when that word of fiery judgment comes to them? From God, through Peter, to these people. Led along by the Spirit. Friends, that is the moment when they hear that word, that we are God's enemies, and that God is putting us under the footstool of King Jesus, that's when they get scared. That's the moment when they're cut to the heart, when they realize they're under God's judgment for killing Messiah. You could put it this way, that's when the word of the Lord spoken from the one who had God's tongue of fire on him. When that word cuts like a two-edged sword into their hearts. And that's when they say, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? We realize now that we are under God's judgment. The Spirit, through these fiery tongues of judgment, has brought this reality to them, and now they're convicted, aren't they? So what, what should we do? And what does Peter say? Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What promise? Is for them the Holy Spirit, the Isaiah 32 promise, the Ezekiel 39 promise, the Joel 2 promise. The promise of being indwelt, filled by the Holy Spirit. And through being filled by the Holy Spirit, becoming a part of the dwelling place of God on earth. Where God's presence is now spread over the entire earth through his people. What's happening here in Acts chapter 2 with the sending of the Spirit, let me be absolutely clear. The age of God's dwelling in a temple made of stones, made by human hands, that age is over. It is ended When Peter says these things are fulfilled, that ends the old age of the temple, the old temple. No more will people go to that temple in Jerusalem to have their sins atoned for. Never again. No more will people go to that temple to worship God. Never again. Not the one true and living God. That is over. Just as Jesus told the woman at the well, it would one day be over. John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, they're up in Samaria, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he goes on, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Here's what's happening in redemptive history here, now that we're in Acts 2. The Christ has come. And He's, he's died. And He's made Himself the sacrifice. And he's taking, taken his sacrifice and made final atonement. Forgiveness of sins is now in him. You cannot go to any temple, any physical structure to have your sins forgiven anymore. It's in Christ alone. True worship is now in him and through him only. And he has sent the Spirit His presence, the presence of God, the glory of God, and now the Spirit is gathering for Christ a people. He's building a new temple to to be what? To be the dwelling place of God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you, us, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A temple is a dwelling place, okay? You're being made, if you're in Christ, you're being made into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. He builds a temple for God be the dwelling place of God, to be the place where people go to meet God. When you hear the news that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's come and he's suffered and he's died and he's defeated death and he's risen and ascended into heaven to atone for your sins and intercede for you, when you hear that good news and you repent and you believe and you are baptized, you become a part of the temple because the Spirit dwells in you. God is in you. Peter says, this is not like the old temple. This is not like the temple built of cold stones. This is built of living stones. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Church, do you see what's happening here? Spirit is making a new temple. That's what the Spirit was sent to do. And the new temple is the church. This temple, the church, it's not a building. It's not an event that you attend. It's not something that you watch, whether you're here or you're watching at home on live stream. It's not a performance. The church is the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit, gathered together by the Spirit at His own sovereign choosing. It is a people set apart to glorify God, and that's what we are this morning. 
Because of Christ's work, because he sent the Spirit, the Spirit has united you to Christ, and you are now the people where God's presence is made manifest to the world. Let the nations be glad. Because of the Spirit's work, if someone wants to worship God, they don't go to Jerusalem. If they do, they will not find him unless they go to a church. To worship God now, you only have to find a gathering of people that God has sanctified and made atonement for and sent his spirit to. And whatever you find, those spirit-filled people, you worship God in Christ there amongst those people. Christ's church, his temple. And that's what we are. We are a gathering of people who have been born again by the spirit into Christ. And we have his spirit, and we worship God together. We sing to him together. That's why. This is why. We'll talk more about this next week. This is why we don't have a performance up here that you watch. And never will. This is why we sing together, because we're the temple together. This is why what I'm doing up here is not a performance. I'm not acting. I'm not reading some other script that someone else wrote. Taking God's word and declaring it to the people because it's his word. And we're growing together. We're being built up together as Christ's body together. We are a gathering of people who have been born again by the Spirit into Christ. And we worship God together. And one of the ways that we do that is by obeying him together 